welcome to Another Words. I am your host, Susan Share, and my guest today is Dr. Robert Baxt. Bob, welcome. Nice to be here. Glad to have you. The reason it's been so difficult to get him scheduled is that he's very often not in town because he is with Doctors Without Borders, with Project Hope. He's a humanitarian doctor and he spends a lot of his time in countries that we see on the news. You see what's going on over there. That's true. But first I want to say one thing, that these are my personal observations, my personal feelings about things. They don't represent the actual political and operational mission statements. In this country, we don't really know what's going on. So, Bob, where would you like to start? I had just come back from South Sudan, Mm -hmm. uh, right near the border of Sudan and South Sudan. And a lot of what goes on in that area is tribal, and a lot of it is religious, and it's quite disheartening. I've heard this before, that you can't really understand what's going on in Africa unless you understand the tribal system. That's exactly correct. We judge these people by our ethic, by our standards, and that's not the way they are judging themselves or each other. They have no clue as to a pluralistic democratic government. It doesn't register in their consciousness. Do they have any desire for that sort of thing? Uh, I think it's out of their realm of thought process. Okay, it's not Uh, on the radar anyway. It's not on the radar. And so to come in and try and impose that is absurd. It's all loyalty to clan, then clan loyalty to tribe, and then tribe loyalty to language group. They have no clue as to a central government, and I don't think there's a desire to have a central government. And what happens is that Westerners come in and they draw boundaries. That the people in in these countries do not recognize. Or understand. Okay. One of the interesting things I've learned being there is that Arab traders came down about the year 1000 from the Middle East into Africa, and they established a slave trade. The bigger tribes and the more powerful tribes took prisoners of the more smaller and subservient tribes and sold them to the Arabs, who then sold them all over the world. One of the biggest... Um, and, and this was okay. This, is this, was absolutely, this was absolutely business as usual. Well, they came down, the Arab traders came down as far as the Sud, the swamp. Everything from that area north is Muslim. And everything below that was settled by tribes that were influenced by the British and the French and the Germans who were Christians. And so there's a great divide right at that line. And there's a big infighting going on on that tribal border for only two, three, four hundred years. And for us to, <laughs> to come in there and say... You guys got to play nice and get along because we've drawn the lines of this country. It's absurd. South Sudan has three or four large tribes, the uh, Dinka, Nuer. Then the third biggest is, um, oh, the third tribe is the Moulay. The name is escaping. It'll come to me. Okay. And these, these tribes don't play nice. And the Nuer and the Dinka were part of the same tribe in early colonial history. The Dinka started to cooperate with the British. The Nuer didn't want to cooperate with the British, so they split off from the Dinka, and now they hate each other. And they will kill each other at the drop of a hat. 
and everyone will kill the Muslims who come down from Darfur because they're Muslim. And the Nuer and the Dinka are not traitors, but the, the Darfurians are traitors. What religion are they? They're Christians. They are? Yeah. The people in, in South Sudan? Are Christians. Okay. And so it's, let's kill everybody. Now, everybody over the age of 14 has got an AK-47, and they'll kill each other at the drop of a hat. Without any reason, necessarily. Uh, not that I can discern. Of course, there are reasons about, well, I'm going to raid that group for their cattle. We have nothing to do today, so we'll go to that tribe and steal their cattle, and we'll kill a few, and then we know that they're going to retaliate and come and steal back their cattle and kill a few, and that's okay. That's the way it goes, and the Darfurians are going to come down, and they're traitors, and we'll get mad at them, and we'll kill them, and that's the accepted kind of game. And so, for instance, when I was there, I was in a place called Bentu. Bentu was a provisional capital uh, in one of the states in South Sudan. Bentu had the unfortunate geographical thing to be to have oil, ah, which was discovered, and so everybody wants to fight over the oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctors Without Borders had a hospital in Bentu for 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Bentu was mostly settled by New Air way back when. And so when oil came and the government was then separated from Sudan to South Sudan, the president was a Dinka, the vice president was a New Air. Oh, that doesn't sound good. To, they were supposed to have power sharing, but each one accused the other one of trying to usurp power. And then a civil war starts, which is really a tribal war. And so the government, and mostly Dinka, come into Bentu, where we are, and we have a hospital, and they shoot the patients in the bed, looted the hospital. And, and you can't stop them, can you? Well, how are we going to stop them? Yeah, all, right. of these, all of these agencies uh, disavow violence or weapons. So Doctors Without Borders says big signs, weapon-free zones. Mm-hmm. Project Hope is weapon-free zones. No, no one has weapons. Even for self-defense? Nothing. Okay. We rely on the fact that we're neutral. Mm-hmm. We'll treat anybody. And we rely on that fact to keep us alive. And it, it works at least somewhat. Usually it works. Yeah. And so they loot around us. They don't kill, they don't kill the, 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 the whites. The whites. The, okay, the, the medical The personnel. expatriates. Yeah. Now, if they're in Pats working with our group, they're fair game. And so we've got to evacuate them and hide them because, or, or tell them to run for their lives because they'll kill them. Uh, then a bunch of Muslims from Darfur hid in a mosque, assuming that they would be safe in the mosque. Well, if you remember the headlines, they went in and slaughtered them all. And that's where they put me <laughs> to help. You know, And what I can do is I'm not a very good use of resource. I only can save one person at a time. I cannot change the culture. My hope is that by saving lives... I can open somebody's eyes to say, wait, there's got to be a better way than what we're doing. By working one patient at a time, I can show them that not the, the whole world is not bad, that there are people outside that do care, and that the world does care, and maybe they'll get it. Doctors Without Borders had five or six hospitals around South Sudan. All but one were looted. Everything is gone. The people have fled. They're living in the bush. The towns are gone. There's nothing to save. Jeez. We established a new hospital at a place called Lankian, which was in a relatively safer area. And the wounded started filtering in after walking days and days and uh. days. And there was what we call self-triage. The really severely wounded ones are dead. And you can see the, uh, the marabou stalks 
which are like scavengers. They're like vultures circling over the bush and landing. And, you know, there are bodies out there. And in case you don't know, listeners, Doctors Without Borders, you will often see it as MSF. Yeah, Medicines Sans Frontiers. Which because, yeah, French. it's originally a French organization. And we wear our only protection are T-shirts that say MSF. And they know what that is. Everyone knows what that is. Okay. And that's our only, we go everywhere. And the joke is that these T-shirts bulletproof. And we go everywhere and put ourselves in the middle and try and, and essentially save as many bodies as we can and hopefully someone's eyes get opened up. Almost everybody, even in the smallest villages of Africa, has a cell phone now. <laughs> Honest to God, you can't believe it. Don't have water, a, but you got there, a cell There's phone. a Chinese company that sells airtime and, and has transmitters, and they all know about the Internet. They all have computers, too, don't they? A lot of them do. Jeez. And so the hope is leave them alone, make the whole place a weapons-free zone. Now, that's really tough because someone's supplying the weapons. And let them live on the Internet by themselves. And, and figure it and, out. And figure themselves. it out. Yeah. Because we can't tell them what to do. And our values are not their values. Well, that's the thing. They have good reason not to listen to us because we don't understand where they're coming from. We don't know what their lives are. Uh, that's true. We have no idea. I mean, you know, in a lot of places, women are expected to have 10 to 15 pregnancies in their life because children are wealth. And especially if you have a daughter... You get a bride price, yeah. and that's that's money. That's cows, because the women do a lot of the daily work. So they know that they're going to have ten to fifteen pregnancies, and half of those kids are going to die. Now, to us, losing a kid is a tragedy, and it is a tragedy to them. But it doesn't have the same. They expect it. They don't like it necessarily, and they don't want it to happen. But it's a reality that they live with. And to see these kids, and I walk around, and I look at them, and by age two, they're done. Their hair is red. Their bellies are big. Their red hair is a sign of malnutrition. They're malnourished. Their brain development is done. Jeez. They may be alive, but their intellectual development is stunted. Whether you like to admit it or not, that's the way it is. What do you do with them? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being mean, but it's a, it's a real problem. You look at it, it's heartbreaking to see these kids that are listless, that are playing in the dirt that don't have clothes of any kind, and they're relying on the World Food Program to airlift in lentils and rice and beans for daily meals Mm -hmm. and for people like MSF to dig what we call uh, essentially a wells and try and purify water for these people. And remember that it's 120 degrees. You need a lot of water. Yeah. And we can't supply enough water. And sanitation is, forget it. The people themselves don't understand sanitation. So the wells are contaminated and the latrines aren't used properly. And food handling is awful, so the food's contaminated. And then in the middle of that, one side says to the other, well, you're helping that side and we're not getting our share of food. And the other side says, no, you're helping that side and we're not getting our share of food. So we'll just shoot down the damn helicopter. And they have done that. Even in that culture, how does that make sense? Don't ask me. No, but that's, we had a hospital in a traditionally newer area. Mm-hmm. Well, the government came in and then said, you're taking sides. No, we're not. This hospital's been here for 20 years. This was a newer area. Now that you're here, well, no, you're taking sides. We want you to fly our wounded to Juba, the capital of South Sudan. No, we don't fly soldiers anywhere. That's taking sides. Well, see, you're taking sides. Oh, Okay. 
No, we're not taking sides, but we don't fly soldiers. But you're treating their wounded. I'll be happy to treat your wounded if they come into our area without uniforms and without guns. We'll, even, we'll put them in a separate tent, we'll put them, which we've done. Mm-hmm. We'll separate them all. But, you know, when one tribe finds the other tribe in the hospital in the area, they'll kill them. And they don't need guns. Machetes work real well. Trust me. I've had my share of taking care of a lot of machete wounds. And I certainly don't have the resources. I mean, I don't have x-rays. I don't have lab tests. I don't have transfusions. I do have IV fluids and antibiotics, some. I've got a limited supply of anesthetics. We had a team that had a very talented anesthesiologist from Japan, talented, another talented anesthesiologist from, from essentially he was from Chicago, but he was Mexican. I found a local surgeon who had been trained in the Ukraine. Now, he didn't have training comparable to the United States, but he was there for years and doing surgery, and I grabbed him. Literally, he was hiding in the bush, and I said, no, come into our compound. We'll protect you because I need your help. We got him in. I had a scrub nurse from Liberia. I had a, a midwife from Kenya. And these, this was our team that we put together. We're trying to do this like one body at a time. It's tough. And the way this got started was some people wanted to, to sell the slaves, capture the weaker tribes and sell them. That's been going on for a thousand people. years. I'm just trying to figure out where the animosity got started. I have no idea. I don't understand why they don't just leave them to Well, that was my themselves. point. You know, you want to bring in medical supplies, fine. Mm-hmm. You want to bring in infrastructure. I think the way to treat this, the whole area is infrastructure is really important. because, But infrastructure causes problems. When there are only footpaths and dirt, then tribes don't intermingle much and they don't kill each other because they're not in each other's faces. Right. But when there's oil and someone builds a road and brings in all kinds of things, well, then you start having interplay that people fight over. So what you, what you need to do is you've got to improve the infrastructure, which means in these countries you've got to give them roads or airstrips. You've got to get them electricity. You've got to get them fresh water and then schools and then leave them alone. But I thought if there were roads, then they would be, it would be easier for them to uh, kill each other. Yeah, but they also could be mobile and go where they wanted. You need to let them find their own way. Right now, the biggest person that's coming in and exploiting this is China. All these AK-47s are made in China. They're using Chinese ammunition. How did it get there? I don't know, but it's sure there because I'm taking Chinese bullets out of people. Okay, so they might not be buying... Another good example. I was in Malawi. Malawi is one of the poorest countries in Africa. Dirt poor. Everybody's messing in these places, and no one gives a good damn about, you know, what happens to the people there. I was in Haiti. The Mellon Foundation has a hospital called the Hospital Albertschweitzer, which has been there since the 50s. The hospital is not looted, and I had we had three operating rooms. Sterility was interesting at best. Equipment was interesting at best, and we made do. And we did a lot of good work, and we saved a lot of lives, and we did a lot of stuff with what we had. You save lives. What happens to those lives? Well, they go back to their old way, but maybe they go back a little wiser. There are kind of four stages that you get to when you, when you do this kind of work. The first stage is, oh, boy, oh, boy, look what I'm going to go do. I'm going to get there. And the second stage is, oh, man, I'm here, and there's a lot of work to do. And the third stage is, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? <laughs> I can't, I've got to get out of here. And the fourth stage is you recognize everything, and you take a small victory here and there, and you realize what you can do and what you can't do, and you do the best you can. Occasionally an MSF will get killed or wounded by hostile activity or kidnapped, but that's a rarity. Okay. Most of the time, 
because we're neutral and because we're an aid organization and everybody knows it, most of the time we're marginally safe. Okay. But we stay, we stick together. We don't go out, and no one goes anywhere alone. Oh, I'll bet they. We don't. stick in our compound. We stay in our uh-huh. compound, and we go from our compound to our hospital, and that's it. Why do you go back? I think it's the right thing to do. The only thing that I can say that I would say publicly is that you got to play it forward. I got an opportunity in this world, for whatever reason, by a birth accident. We were born here and now. We got a chance. Well, we've got to give someone a chance. We had the United States Navy ship Mercy parked out in the harbor. It has, it's a 1,000-bed hospital. It has 12 fully staffed operating rooms. It's one of the best-equipped hospitals you'll ever see in the world. It has a CT scanner, an MRI, x-rays, a trauma bay. It's a 1,000-bed trauma hospital. Staffed with surgeons, nurses, internists, GI people, orthopedists, you name it, that ship's got it. And it was run by Project Hope in the United States Navy. We would fly into the country, set up a clinic, and we would treat whatever we could treat, and we would green band the sick ones to be taken back to the ship, to the hospital, where they could get treatment. And we noticed that at least half of the people that we green banded never showed up. We went to the dock and found out that the local officials said, oh, the medical care is free, but for the privilege of us letting you go to the ship, you have to pay us 20 American dollars. What benefit is there in the government if, if everybody dies off? I mean, how, what good is there benefit? Having- it was money and power. We yeah. went to the provincial governor and raised holy hell, and then it stopped. And he claimed he didn't know about it. So that you get similar games in similar countries. It's all boils down to money and power, and then we try and impose our deals on them, and they don't understand it. We had a little eight-year-old boy come in with a really bad cleft lip. His face was in his chest, wouldn't pick up his head. His mother was embarrassed. It covered his head all the time. We brought him on ship, and we had an Australian head and neck surgeon. Two hours later, kid's normal. Two hours? Two hours. Wow. Oh, my gosh. His mother takes one look at him, and she breaks down and cries in, in tears. She's hysterical because he's got a life back. The next day, he goes home with his head held high. Wow. So we made a person out of this kid. We got the whole world in front of him. The world's open to him. Maybe he'll accomplish something. So why do we do what we're doing? Because that kid may accomplish something. I can't imagine much, anything much more fulfilling than what you do. Well, that's why we do it. We're in each country for three, four weeks. We operate seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And some of these surgeries are just routine for the surgeons. They're all routine for us. When I was in Tanzania, they, they started to try and do laparoscopic hernias. They'd never used a laparoscope before. We went in and we taught them how to do laparoscopic cholecystectomies and laparoscopic hernias. These guys are trained surgeons, but they didn't have the equipment. We brought in the equipment. We made sure they were stocked. We taught them how to use it. We taught them how to do the procedures. So we just advanced medical care in Tanzania. And these guys, they're not only going to get good at it, they'll train the next generation. And so part of what we do is take care of people, and part of what we do is train people. Well, listen, I think that's a good place to end this. Bob, thank you so much. You've been listening to In Other Words. You can find me, Susan Scher, and my editing and writing business at inotherwordsgroup.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Join us again. Bye-bye.